0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
1: Mean Lion Media presents the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits
2: podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Coach Kevin, and welcome to another episode of Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits. This week, I am so excited to have our special guest, Dr. Tracy Bailey. I'd like to welcome you to our show.
1: Thank you, Kevin. I'm excited to be here.
2: So glad you took the time. I know you're busy out there uh, doing what you do, and we're going to get into it and talk about it, but uh, I really appreciate you taking time just to stop by. So if you would, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Anything you think we need to know about your family, your education, your career? What is it about Dr. Tracy Bailey that we need to know?
1: Well, I consider myself to be a pretty ordinary person. I'm um, excited to tell you that I am a native of the North Santee community in Georgetown County, South Carolina. Got to represent for North Santee for the uh, little rural communities out there that people don't really Expect a whole lot to come out of. And I'm very proud to say that that's where I was born and raised. I'm the youngest of seven children and um, went on to graduate from Georgetown High School and then went to the College of Charleston, majored in English and started teaching English at T High School, then pursued a master's degree at Coastal Carolina University And then went on to receive a Ph.D. from the University of South Carolina in language and literacy. And I started a nonprofit in 2010 to help young people uh, fall in love with reading and to improve reading skills in low income communities. And today I continue to run that nonprofit. And I also lead the Boys and Girls Club of the Grand Strand.
2: That's pretty awesome. So is it safe to say that you have a passion and a love for young people?
1: I definitely would would, um, would agree that I do have a passion for seeing young people reach their full potential and have the opportunity to chase their dreams, especially young people who come from challenging backgrounds and situations. Kids don't really get to choose where they're born, where they grow up, and um, in the environment in which they are expected to, to thrive. So I find it, um, I feel like it's a privilege and a calling and an honor to be able to create spaces where they can really find their path.
2: I've been able to watch uh, the program from a distance uh, for years, and I've always uh, been impressed. So can you tell our listeners about, in detail, about Freedom Readers? What inspired you to start the organization? I know you briefly talked about it. Even the name. You know what I mean? What inspired you to just start in 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 where are you at right now? Just tell us about the journey.
1: So, Kevin, before I jump into the journey, I want to thank you specifically because I remember when we had our first red carpet awards at Freedom Readers and we reached out to you and asked you to be our keynote speaker. And I don't know if you knew a lot about us. You were the chief of police at the time for Georgetown, the city of Georgetown, and you accepted our invitation. And that really um, that really was a big help for us. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for doing such a wonderful job of inspiring the young people back then.
2: Well, I appreciate that. Hey, we all got a little part to do, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: So Freedom Readers was really um, inspired by. Uh, my desire to connect with young people and inspire them in a way that would take them a little bit outside of the structure of what we consider to be organized schooling. Because I know that a lot of the kids who are sitting in classrooms are not necessarily getting all of their needs met, especially when it comes to uh, learning to love reading and reading well um, I was looking at test scores that showed that a, a lot of young people of color were on the bottom of the list when we looked mm-hmm. at reading scores, when we looked at those test scores. I discovered a lot of that when I was in um, my doctorate, my doctoral program. And then I, it uh, dawned on me that, you know, it's not necessarily something that the kids are missing inherently. Sometimes it's the way that we're trying to meet them in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to create a way that might be a little bit different from doing it the way that we do it in the classroom. So I wanted to invite people from the community to sit with young people and work with them one to one. And I thought that that one to one model might be a little bit more helpful than for some of those kids who were falling through the, the cracks in the classroom if they had a large group, 30, 25 kids, and one teacher trying to meet all of their needs. So that's one of the things that uh, kind of motivated me to accept an invitation from the Conway Housing Authority to meet with some of the young people there. Um, the resident services coordinator told me that there were a lot of kids living in what we might consider a housing project or a public Mm -hmm. housing community who really were not being supervised in the afternoon and they were getting into some things that he didn't think was very productive at the time. And he thought that having some structured programs in the community would be helpful for the kids. And so I raised my hand and said, I would invite some of my friends to come out. And so we meet with kids once a week. Uh, We started in two communities in Conway. And right now we're on the verge of being in four counties and uh, we have in-person meetings and we have meetings with young people online virtually as well. But the whole goal is to make sure that they're connected with one person that will find out about them, help them connect with the books that will inspire them, uh, teach them a little bit about public speaking and send them home with free books that will help them build their home libraries. And I was fortunate enough to be able to write about this journey in a book that was published last year called Forever Free, A True Story of Hope in the Fight for Child Literacy. So that's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold.
2: That's awesome. You know, as you were talking, Dr. Bailey, a lot of people don't know this. But but you probably know, because I talked about this uh, when I had the chance to talk to your young people as a keynote speaker, I didn't read a book until i was 21 years old a book outside of school and you know my question is is do you think sometimes that family and situations play a major role you know i was born in harlem lived there till i was about 10 then we moved to charleston and you know my parents worked around the clock you know day shift graveyard day shift graveyard you know i was the cook my brother was the outside guy. I mean, we had things to do, but we did our schoolwork, did just enough to get by, but it was never, you know, outside of reading, you know, a Bible scripture or a hymn book at Sunday school. I just wasn't pushed. You know what I'm saying? I, I you know, great parents, loving parents, but I wasn't really pushed towards literacy. And and my question is, is that a normal thing?
1: Um that's a great question that you asked kevin and i'm I'm very glad that you shared that story about your literacy journey and i I believe that you are right that families and environments do have a major impact on how we end up interacting with books and and how we feel about reading. My literacy journey was a little bit different because I remember as a little girl my father read to me just about every night before I went Mm -hmm. to sleep. And um, that's an amazing thing because my dad had to stop going to school at the end of the eighth grade. He was Mm -hmm. born in 1935, uh, right in the heart of the Great Depression, uh, not too far from where I grew up in the North Santee area. And so when it came time for him to decide whether he was going to live with a relative in the city of Georgetown or not go to school, he decided to find a job because at that time they didn't have a bus that would take him from North Santee into the city of Georgetown where the school was. So he read all the time, though, and education was very, very important to him. And so I remember it was like these books just kind of appeared in my house from somewhere. I don't know if they fell out of the sky, but there was always um, Dr. Seuss. There was a book called There's a Monster at the end of this book that I loved. And every time he read that book, I would ask him, please read it again. He was like, no, I have to read it to you tomorrow. And I would take it under the covers. I get next to my little Donald Duck nightlight and try to read it on my own. But that was something that was a special bond between the two of us. And my mom and dad had, they just were both very serious about making sure that all of their children had a good education. And I think that that was one of the things that really pushed me towards wanting to pursue literacy and provide that opportunity for other children.
2: And that's awesome. And I know it makes a difference because with my kids, you know, realizing that, you know, I didn't read a whole book until I was 21. It was really important for me and my wife to make sure that that they were on it. And so it's funny to see uh, my daughter has a daughter right now. She reads to her all the time Uh, and she's not she's eight months pregnant with a son. And guess what? She reads to him. I don't know if it makes a difference or not. You may know some scientific deal, but he's not even here yet. And she is reading. Damn. What do you think about that?
1: Well, first of all, I want to say congratulations, Grandpa. That's amazing. I know you must be very, very proud. I I can tell you that that was one of the things that my husband did before my children were born. He read to them in the womb um, religiously. And he also used... I can tell you that my husband used an elevated vocabulary with my kids when they were very, very small. Here's Mm -hmm. one example. Um, I can remember my son was crawling around on the floor and he found some piece of little grain of food or something and he stuck it in his mouth and my husband immediately picked him up off the floor and looked him in the eye. He's a baby crawling on the floor and he said, son, don't do that. That's unsanitary. And so he we believed in really just talking to him in a way that he might not understand yet, but he would be able to understand in just a little bit. And I really feel like my, my parents did the same thing for me. And so that's the kind of conversation I know that happens at Freedom Readers where a young person might be sitting next to an attorney or a doctor or a retired engineer And they're able to make this connection. And that child is able to pick up on a new vocabulary, a new way of seeing the world and is able to just kind of instinctively model themselves after a person that could be, you know, a person that they may turn into one day.
2: Yeah, I see it in my granddaughter and these kids are so smart. Today, You know, and, and of course, they have so many different resources and tools. I heard you a few minutes ago talking about how you uh, you pair the kids up with their mentor or tutor and you use uh, technology, you know, to connect with them. I know everybody can't always be every place all the time, but I'm sure you use Zoom or different tools to be able to c- connect with them. So my question there is, was that a as a result of COVID Or was it just something that came into play?
1: So before the pandemic happened, um, there were about 22 what we call in-person sites for young people. And that's where we will enroll as many as 20 scholars. That's what Hmm. we call them. And then we will connect each one of them with a tutor that will work with them individually. Um, But then when the pandemic came around, it just really broke my heart. Because a lot of our tutors were uh, retired people, some of them elderly, and I knew how quickly germs could spread around when you had little kids and older people together. So the board made the very difficult decision to close those sites. So for a while, we weren't able to interact with the young people at all until we came up with the idea of the reading lab. And we call it the reading lab because we invited any family in the entire community who was interested in finding out where their child was reading or what their reading level was to make an appointment with us. And we'd administer um, a reading assessment and we could tell them whether or not their child was reading on grade level at the time. So we've kept our reading lab open and now we're operating in three states with our reading lab. We start with an assessment, and then we can assign a child a tutor that meets with them on Zoom once a week, and then we mail the tutor and the scholar the same book so that they can read those books together when they meet online, and the child can also build their own home library. One thing I think is really special about the reading lab is the tutor and the scholar also exchange letters in the mail. So they're Mm -hmm. not just working on their reading skills, but they're working on their writing skills as well.
2: That's so awesome. And I was gonna tell you a few minutes ago before I switched up uh, my granddaughter, so she's five now. In about a year and a half, I was on a year and a half ago, I was on granddad duty. She calls me Papa. So we're riding down the road, you know, I'm talking you know back and forth. And so as we go along, you know sometimes we play I spy or sometimes, you know, I say, hey, you see that? What is that? you know and so we're riding along out in the country. And I said, hey, her name is Nolan. We call her No-No. I said, hey, Nolan, you see that tractor over there? And Dr. Bailey, you want to guess what she said to me? She said, Papa, that's not a tractor. That's an excavator. And it blew my mind. You know, these kids are, I mean, they're, they, they just have access to so much technology and they are so, so smart, so smart. So, you talked a lot about the program and the, and the amazing journey. I didn't even know that you were doing the reading lab uh, in three states. That's that's really awesome. Did the program face any challenges at, at a certain point? Did you find yourself sitting there thinking it at some point just to keep it real? What what in the hell am I doing? What's what's going on? Did you hit a roadblock? Did you face any challenges where you questioned what your vision was?
1: Well, I absolutely um can say that I had a lot of days when I questioned my decision to try to start a nonprofit. It was a, it was in 2010, and if you remember, that was right around the time that our economy was really kind of falling apart here in in our in the country. And so I was wondering I mean it felt like I was just running on adrenaline, but not just that, I was running on Really, a vision that I felt like I had been given for all of the experiences that I'd had in my life leading me to that moment. But I think that when you start out chasing a dream, then you really should expect that you're going to run into roadblocks and hurdles. Those people who are not really. Sure that that you are the right person to be doing what it is that you're doing, those people who ask you, um, do we need another nonprofit in our community? Don't we have enough non- nonprofits right now? Um, those people who say these kids who live in these communities are not going to respond to any program that's organized and structured like yours, that's not what they're about. All they want to do is run around. They don't want to sit around and listen and read any books. But I think that every time you run into a parent who says to you, my kid is now choosing a book over a video game because of the time that they spent with you, or every time you get a call from a parent that says, when are you all going to be back? Because my kid is asking about going to Freedom Readers every day and you're on a break, but I need to know when you'll be back. Those are the things that really keep you going. There, There are all kinds of roadblocks. And all kinds of things that discourage you. For instance, when you look at the nonprofit landscape in general, you know that just about 50% of them fail within the first three to five years. And you look at nonprofit leaders in our area, especially, you don't find a lot of them who are African American women. So um, I considered all of those things, but was able to press through, and I'm grateful.
2: You know, as an African American woman, of course, I, you you talked about some of the challenges, but as an African American woman, like you pointed out, at some points has it been hard for you to maneuver the nonprofit world and get people to buy into your vision. Early on, of course, they're buying in now because right, we kind of live in a show and tell society. You know what I'm saying? You show me, okay, and then everybody wants to be on the winning team, right? Once, but, but they don't know, you know, what happened from the beginning. But, my, you know, my question is, was it hard for you to maneuver and, and get people to buy in to your vision?
1: I think it was really hard to maneuver in the beginning because I was trying to do something that I had never done before, that nobody in my family had ever done before. I'd never sat on the board of a nonprofit. I didn't know how it was structured. I didn't know how to get to the people who could sit on the board and help me figure these things out. So it was really it was kind of intimidating and and kind of tough. Um, I was very, very fortunate that my husband at the time worked for the local newspaper, the Sun News, and he believed in what I was trying to do from the beginning. And if he had not supported what I was trying to do and didn't, it wasn't very vocal in public about his support for this project, then I don't think we would have really gotten it up off the ground. Also, I was able to connect with um, Sally Hare, who's a friend of mine. She worked at Coastal Carolina University, and we call Sally the Great Connector. Because if you sit down and you and you talk to her, then she will give you a list of people that you need to talk to next, and she will help you set up meetings. She was one of the very um, first people to say to me, "I think what you're doing is the right thing, and I'll support you in any way that I can." So it really does take a village in a situation like that to help you open doors, help you figure out how to write grants, how to file with the Secretary of State to become a, a real nonprofit, how to get a 501c3 filed with the IRS. There are a lot of hoops and hurdles, but you know, through networking and through reading and being determined to figure out the answers to things and surrounding yourself with smart people, you can get it done.
2: And you know, just being around and and sitting on some boards and I'm talking years ago I would see certain programs um frowned upon, right? And 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 I remember early on when I first encountered uh Florine Lennon and the diabetes core group. We we know, both know. Awesome programs, still rocking and rolling today. But early on, it was just like the program from my perspective just didn't get the respect. That it needed, and it was impacting, and it was saving lives, and it was changing lives, and it was, you know, helping quality of life and helping people live longer. But just, it just didn't get that respect. And there again, Florine Lennon is an African American female. So, Dr. Bailey, what what social issues are important to you?
1: Well, there are a lot of uh, social issues that I think are extremely important, and I think that what you just mentioned. Um, that example that you just raised is something that's, that's extremely important because I think it leads back to the whole idea of racial equity, the whole idea of making sure that everybody gets a fair shake, that every voice is heard in our community, that people are valued for their ideas and not necessarily for their connections, and how far back they can trace their ancestry in the country. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, yeah. I think that that social justice and racial equity go hand in hand with the work that I've been trying to do my entire career where it comes to literacy. Because I think that if you have that foundation, then no one can take your voice away. Mm-hmm. Once you learn how to read, once you know how to navigate the landscape, once your critical thinking skills are sharpened then you can be forever free. That's gotcha. the why how the name of the Freedom Readers organization came about comes from a quote from Frederick Douglass who said once you learn to read you will be forever free. And he was enslaved but someone taught him how to read and once that happened he couldn't be a slave anymore not in the mental sense. And so I just am convinced that the same way that books and learning and literacy and questioning freed Frederick Douglass, that there are young people today that can be freed in that same way.
2: That's beautiful. I'm going to tell you, that's that's really beautiful. And so you were talking and, and all I could visualize was as you were talking about reading was a key. Unlocking the door, you know what I'm saying. I mean, it just it just sounds, you know, like reading and literacy is a key. It just and, and it just opens it up, you know, to the whole world. Whatever whatever it is you want to see, what it you you want to be, it's uh. I just, I like what you said. It's beautiful. So when did you realize um, that you had a Cause you have a passion for young people. I mean, it's, you know, you see it in your eyes, you, you, you smile, you perk up when you talk about them. And we talked a little bit about the boys and girls program as well, but at what age or when did you realize that you had a passion to serve young people?
1: Well, I think I'm going to pick up on a key word that you used in your question there. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to hone in on that word serve. Okay. And I think that when I was in college, I realized that when I was being raised in that North Santee community, I was being raised on a platform of service, that my parents raised me to think about other people, you know, like across the street, I can't even say street, across from the dirt road, where our house was, was a plot of land where we had a garden. And so my daddy would grow corn, he'd grow okra, he'd grow butter beans. And whenever somebody went out to get something out of the garden, there'd be a bucket for our house, but there'd be another bucket for somebody else's house. So a part of my job would be to pick up that bucket and take it down the road and leave it on so-and-so's porch. So they taught me by example that part of the rent that we pay. For being here on this planet is about service. And yeah. so, um, you know, that's that's where I think my life would have eventually ended up, even if it wasn't about reading or books or children or literacy, I had to somehow, someway find a way to serve because that's yeah. just how I was raised. When I was at the College of Charleston, I started thinking about the fact that I remember being in an education class and I read in a book that by a certain year, we would have more children of color in our schools than we would have teachers of color. And that statistic kind of struck me because I know how important it was for me to have role models, to be able to see a teacher of color in front of a classroom. It kind of inspired me. Yeah. And yeah. so I thought, well, you know, maybe I could give a couple years in the classroom Maybe I could give four or five years in education, and that would be a part of my service, and I could go on and do other things. I actually wanted to be a lawyer because I used to watch a show called L.A. Law on TV when I was growing Mm -hmm. up, and somebody on that show drove a red Porsche, and that was what I wanted to do Uh, one day. I wanted to be able to drive. I even had it picked up. It was a Porsche 911 (laughs) that I wanted to drive, candy apple red. And it was really, you know, what I wanted to work toward. Yeah. But as I sat in that class, I said, well, I'll give this a shot. I'll go into education for a little while. But when I got into the classroom, I realized that it was really not something that you just gave a little bit of yourself to. When you started working with children, you had to jump in 1000%. And so I think that... The inkling kind of occurred to me when I was in the in my classroom in college, but when I got into the classroom and saw how much of it it required of me, how much of myself it required to be a good teacher, then that's yeah. when the passion developed.
2: That's awesome, you know. Um, and of course, different tracks, different careers, but we parallel in in the form of service. I really believe that me and you we parallel the form of service. And uh, and a quote you said, I believe it was Muhammad Ali who said it, uh, you know, uh, you know, our, our, let me make sure I get it right. Service is the rent we pay to occupy this space on earth. And uh, it is so true. You know, when, when I I was in the military, I got out, I got law enforcement and honestly, never in my life did I think I was going to be in law. I didn't even, as a kid, I didn't, I didn't care for the police. But at the time I got out of the military, I needed a job. I got involved. And that is when my, my career and service really started because it didn't take me long to figure out something was off. Something was off. And, and what seemed to be off was just the cycle just the cycle, you know, uh, dealing with a a dad and then dealing with the son and just family cycles of stuff. And I'm like, okay, we out here writing tickets. Yep. We out here locking up the bad guy, but it just didn't seem like, you know, we were making a difference. And I I always had this feeling that, you know, we got to do more. We got to do more. We're not doing enough. And, uh, and so, you mentioned your husband and I want you to call him by name and talk about him a little bit because I know what it feels like to have somebody on your team to push you when you come home and you like, man, you know what, such and such and such, you know, whatever happened. Hey, stay focused. You know what I'm saying? You know what, you, you know what the assignment is. You know what you got to do. Stay focused. Don't worry about that. Keep moving. You know what I mean? So I applaud your husband for that. And I I do want you to call his name. Let the listeners know a little bit about him. Let the listeners know who he is. And hopefully you help me convince him at some point to come on this podcast and let's have a conversation, too.
1: Well, I definitely uh, will will encourage him to do that, because I think the conversation is going very well so far, having a great time and um, am very, very Happy to call his name on this show because he's a—he's just a really great guy, Um, Isaac Bailey. And I will have been married 25 years next if we make it to next summer in August. You make it. You make it. Sure, we will. (laughs) It'll be 25 years. We met at the Governor School for Academics in 1990 at the College of Charleston. We were fortunate to find one another because once we did find one another, we said to to each other, if we get in a position where we're able to create a a program like the one where we met to give back to our community, then we'll do that together. So that was one of the reasons that Freedom Readers actually took root because I I knew he would support it because we had already said to one another, that's one of the things that we wanted to do. Isaac is a a prolific writer. Um, He writes about issues of politics and uh, justice. And um, not only has he published columns, but he's also published a few books out there. And right now he's teaching journalism at Davidson College. So he's really getting it done.
2: And just so you know, I look forward to the day when... Your love story is a movie. I look forward to that day when your love story. is possible. No, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I look forward to the day when your love story is a movie. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Thank you for sharing a little bit about your family. So tell me, you talked about your husband. Tell me about your kids.
1: Absolutely. We have two beautiful children. Um, Our oldest is Kyle. He is 21 years old and is passionate about music the way that I'm passionate about working with Mm -hmm. children. And, um, I think that he, he may, he may be able to do big things in music. He's very talented and we hope that, uh, doors will continue to open for him. And our daughter is lyric. She's 18 years old and she is a freshman at Davidson college and having a great time there.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. So, Dr. Bailey, have you ever had a life changing conversation uh, with someone about race, culture or just being different in general? You know, how did it happen? What was what was said? What was the content and what was the outcome?
1: I think that instead of sharing about a particular conversation that I had, I'll just say that as I was. in my program at the University of South Carolina, I was able to take several classes that really did, you know, a lot of people talk about how horrible critical race theory is. Mm-hmm. But in my program, we actually took a look at critical race theory. And it it really, for me, caused a paradigm shift. And it really wasn't about saying that one group of people is terrible and another group of people you know, is great. But it really helped me to understand some things about the way that our country was built. And I do, I do feel like sometimes we skirt around the fact that there were two warring ideals at place when our country was founded. And one had to do with the fact that people could come from all over the world and find freedom, and that you could... um chase after the American dream. But at the same time, we had something called slavery at the beginning of this country. So our country was built on white supremacy. So those two ideals were kind of fighting for prominence at the beginning of our country, and still begin to shape and form a lot of the things we do in our country today. Mm-hmm. So through those classes that I took at the University of South Carolina, I began to really examine some things in a in a new light. And it really it wasn't one conversation, but a series of conversations that helped yeah. me yeah. to ask myself, how am I a part of this system and what things do I really need to start unlearning so that I can help the next generation not necessarily have to go through the same things that we did.
2: That's awesome. Dr. Bailey, why do you think people are so afraid of the critical uh, race theory? Why don't, you know, why don't, why are people so afraid? Why don't people want to talk about it? Why don't they want young people to learn about it? Just from your perspective.
1: Well, from my perspective, I think that um, when it comes to issues of race and looking very, um, being very honest about our history, about some of the things that happened so that we could, we could have the country that we have, the people who actually did the work, built the buildings, just the, the agony that they had to go through, some, a lot of the pain that we experienced. I, I just don't think that we want to be honest about that as a country. I think that a lot of people would rather just sweep a lot of that under the rug, but I don't. I don't really think that we're going to be able to make the kind of progress that we want to make as a nation until we focus the time and the energy we need to focus on healing, yeah. on um, acknowledging things yeah. that happened, hurts that still exist, resentments that we still carry. There's no way we can get past those things until they are acknowledged.
2: And I think sometimes as a society, we we complicate things. Right. And and so, you know, I talk to people just like you do all kind of people. and People ask questions and we talk back and forth and we share perspectives. And, uh, you know, I've been told by some white people that, hey, you know, Kevin, I just feel like, you know, I'm always being blamed for slavery or it was my fault and I just, you know, something's being taken away from me. And I said, "Listen, just listen. And you said it, but I say it a different way. I said, you know, if me and you are friends, we friends. And yesterday I do you wrong. I blatantly do you wrong. And today I show up and I'm like, "Hey, get in. Let's go eat lunch." Like nothing happened. How are you going to receive me? And in most cases, I'm, you know, I get, well, I'm, I'm still kind of be mad about yesterday. Right. And I said, well, how do, how do we get through that? Well, we probably need to talk about it. I, you know, you you probably you can't just show up and act like nothing happened. You got to at least acknowledge to me that yesterday something went wrong. Then, just like you said, you know, what I'm saying the healing starts. People always talk about this like nothing happened. Let's just get to this point. We just need to move on. And that's, and it's easy for some people to say, but some people are still trying to heal. You know, just because you weren't back in slavery time or I would doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt us. Doesn't mean that we don't feel that trauma through our families going back on down, you know, and it's uh it's tough. It's a tough thing, it's a tough conversation. And uh I'm gonna say mention this about my daughter. She she's been talking to me for about A year about something that she calls the critical grace theory, critical grace theory blew my mind when she first brought it up. And she said, you know, she said, Daddy, it's really about forgiveness, forgiving ourselves first. Everybody, each individual starts with them forgiving themselves first, because if we can forgive ourselves for the stuff, for our biases, for our hangups, for our pain points the stuff, the junk that we have. Then it's easier for us to give some other people a little bit of grace and look past the what, what they said, what they did, what happened and try to figure out the why. But it's just interesting how she kind of plays on words. And I'm looking forward to her really developing that idea and pushing it forward. So we talked about a lot. We've talked about a lot. Now, I've really enjoyed it. How about you? Yeah, it's been fantastic. Good, good, good. So I want to take this opportunity, Dr. Bailey, to thank you for what you do um, to the service of our young people. Uh, I, I, Like I said, I've been around and watching and, uh, you know, I, I'm curious to know how many young people has gone through your program from the time it started until now. Do you have any idea?
1: Uh, I really couldn't give you a concrete number. I I would say it, it's it got to be hundreds of kids mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. now who have gone through the program. And um, it really is a, is a blessing. I want to thank you yeah. for uh, saying that you thank me for my service. I really don't mm-hmm. feel like I've done anything out of the ordinary, really. I mean, when we think about what police officers do, what firemen do, they put their lives on the line every day. But like I told you, because of how I was raised, because of yeah. what was always expected of me, I don't see that I need any extra special thanks for what it is that I do. I just try to get up and, and meet the call every day.
2: I feel you on that because I feel the same way. People say, my daughter asked me one day, she said, man, you're always doing something. You know, you're always saying something. You know, you just go, you go, you go, you go hard. And I said, that's because when I leave here, I don't want to half a tank of gas left. I want to do, I want to do my part. So I feel you on that. But I do thank you for your service because our young people are, from my perspective, our greatest resource and you help be the key to unlock the doors for them. So that, so that's a big deal. And you're right. A lot of times when people talk about service, they talk about the military, public safety, but what you do is service and it's a great service to our young people. So thank you very much. I have one final question for you. A little curveball. I always try to throw something out. If you had the opportunity to summarize a message for all of the young people that you somehow come in contact with through your program and deliver this message to our state superintendent, as well as superintendents for uh, schools across the country, across the nation, what would that message be? If
1: I had the opportunity to deliver a message to the state superintendent, I would start by saying that. Every single child in this state, this country, in this world, every child deserves a safe place where they can learn and grow. Every child is worth fighting for. Even the ones that we feel like give us trouble, even the ones that come from neighborhoods that are not affluent, even the ones that we feel like we kind of want to cast aside, the ones that end up being suspended or sent away or expelled, even those kids, they belong to us and they are our responsibility. And so as the keepers of this community, it's our job to find a way for each and every one of them to know that we value them, that they are special, that they are brilliant, that they have talents, and that we have to give them the resources that they need in order to be everything that they were born to be and to develop into the person that God made them to be.
2: Beautifully said, beautifully said. And, you know, (laughs) there was a teacher that I remember like it was yesterday. She, she didn't even realize how much of an impact I was able to find her. I was a captain at a police department. I was able to find her and tell her this, you know, early on, I, you know, I was one of the kids that just I wasn't interested in reaching my full potential, right? I wanted to just get on by and and so I'm doing my thing and and her name was Miss Polk, Miss Polk, and she says she never disrespected me. She was a white lady, she said, "Mr. Waits, can I talk to you for a minute? Just like that, So I get up, she calls me in the hallway, close the door, and she got up in my face. And she said, listen, I'm going to do my best I can to help you get your education. But I need you to fight for yours. Your mom and your dad don't have time to be coming down to the school and I'm going to push you. So you better, you know, she, you know, you better get your stuff together. And I was like, this lady's crazy as hell. You know what I mean? But she got through to me. She got through to me and, and helped me realize that I had value. You know what I'm saying? She didn't look like me, but she she thought enough about me to pull me to the side to get up in my face like my mom or my dad or my uncle or my cousins would and deliver a message. And and it meant so much to me. So, again, you said it earlier. It does take a village. It does take a village and we all have a a role to play And It's all I like the way you said it. You beautifully said it. It's all of our responsibility. Can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about Freedom Readers?
1: Absolutely. You can go to our website, which is freedomreaders.org, or you can give us a call at 843-331-8576. You can email us at infoINFO info at freedomreaders.org, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Just look up uh, Freedom Readers on either of those and Twitter, I think.
2: All right. Again, Dr. Billy, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Uh, Again, thank you for your service. And I appreciate everybody listening to another episode of Safe Conversations with Kevin Waste, where we unpack our bags and we talk about stuff that impact us all with the hope that we can all find a way to move forward together. So until next time, peace.
1: The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Waits, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your Podcast. Find Kevin Waits on Facebook at Kevin Waits, and join the Safe Conversations Group. Follow the Mean O Line Media Podcast Network on IG at O'Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or Google Play. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production. Terms apply.